You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. Welcome to Art Smart from Who Arted, your guide to quick and easy art history. We're cutting through all that art world jargon that doesn't make sense to anyone because art is for everyone. Welcome to Art Smart. I'm your host, Kyle Wood, and for this episode, we're going to focus on op art. I remember years ago, I was meeting with a group of art teachers for some professional development. On the board in the classroom where we were meeting, I noticed the teacher had written out a list of a few art movements with basic notes outlining key concepts for their students. For op art, they wrote, Op art is about optical illusions. There's nothing more to it. On the one hand, I get it. But I'm always uncomfortable with a statement like, there is nothing more to it. Because I think there's always more to something than what we see on the surface. Time magazine coined the term op art in 1964. The article was about a show called Optical Paintings by the artist Julianne Stanzak. Of course, the term op art is used to refer to abstract, non-objective art that creates optical illusions. Commonly, the illusions might be a suggestion of movement, vibrant effects of contrasting colors, hidden images, after images, or creating an appearance of a surface bubbling out, going deeper into space, or warping in some other manner. While the term appears to have come about in 1964, the roots of the movement go back farther. I would say the ideas that informed op art began in the 19th century with Impressionists focusing on how the eye perceives color. Bauhaus artists were also very interested in optics, form, and function, Joseph Albers, for example, created a massive body of work methodically producing paintings of two or three concentric squares in different color combinations. He was part artist and part scientist, noting which colors were used on the back of the canvas. This type of color study gave insights into the effects of juxtapositions of color, Juxtaposition is just one of those words used a lot in art because it makes us sound smart, but it just refers to putting things side by side. Juxtaposition is the side by side placement. We often talk about using juxtapositions as a way of creating comparisons. In this case, the juxtaposition of different colors sort of has our eyes comparing those colors and often extreme high contrast or extreme low contrast can mess with our eyes. Now, as I said, the roots came from Impressionism, the Bauhaus, but those were modern art movements. Op art was a postmodern movement. 
If you recall back to my episode on postmodernism, it's largely about skepticism of a universal truth. That is central to my understanding of op art. While of course it is true that op artists were interested in perception and ways of playing with the viewer's eye, art is always a bit of social commentary as well. Optical illusions implicitly send the message that seeing should not always mean believing, that our eyes can deceive or be deceived. Op art creates an interesting sensory experience, and it builds off previous generations of artists delving into color theory, linear perspective, figure ground ambiguity, by which I mean cropping an image in a way that makes it hard for the viewer to tell what is the subject or the figure in an artwork and what's the background. This happens quite a bit in sort of hard-edged, abstract pieces. While it's a continuation of those previous modes of working, op artists wove these different threads into something new and different that in some ways subverted or undercut the modern philosophy. One often repeated notion in modernist circles was truth to materials. Cezanne, for example, used simple forms, a sphere, cones, cylinders, cubes to describe his subject. He reduced things to these basic forms as a way of calling attention to the artificial nature of art. The viewer was looking at his painting of a landscape, not an actual landscape. Op artists went the exact opposite direction. Their intent was to play with the viewer's eye. Doing so raises questions about the nature of perception, whether we can trust our senses and other mind-bending issues of truth and representation perfectly suited to postmodern philosophy and late-night bowl sessions in college dorm rooms. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. Now, if I were putting together a collection to help people understand op art, here would be my top choices. Victor Vassarelli. I'm torn between his Zebras from 1937, which some consider to be the first op art painting. It predates the movement and yet has all the elements in place with the black and white lines coming together to form a somewhat visually confusing image of two zebras intertwined. At the same time, I feel like Vassarelli did a lot of his most significant work in the 1960s, which was the heyday of the movement. His Vega paintings, Vega 200, Vega Noir from 1968 and 69 respectively, feature what appears to be a sphere bubbling out from the center of the canvas. The subtle shifts and the repeated patterns of geometric shapes and his use of color are breathtaking. It feels like some rad 1980s computer graphics, but it was hand-painted in the 1960s 
making it all the more mind-bending. Bridget Riley, Movement in Squares. This is one of many paintings that Riley created in simple black and white. I say it's simple, but she's doing a lot here. It is flawlessly executed. She plays with our eyes using the principle that things closer to us will look bigger and things farther away will appear smaller. The black and white squares shift to increasingly narrow rectangles, creating the illusion that they're going back into space. At the same time, she's using opposites, black and white, so the repetition of extremely high contrast will also overwhelm the eye with a vibrant effect. M.C. Escher, Circle Limit 3 While in a lot of ways Escher's impossible realities would fit in with the surrealist movement, his tessellations filled with figure ground play go right along with op art. His work is proof of how those who carefully study to learn the rules can bend and break our perceptions. Frank Stella, Rabbit from 1964. Stella was influential in different movements as an artist. He was interested in abstraction, minimalism, and in this work, I would say op art. It's comprised of simple horizontal and vertical bands of vibrant blue and yellow, which meet at a diagonal, tricking the eye into perceiving the bands as rounding a corner. And rounding out my list, I want to end with the artist whose work inspired at least the name for the op art movement, Julianne Stanzak. While this piece, Red Octave, was from 1984 and would not have been in that initial exhibition, this is one of my favorites. Every time I look at it, the bands of color just hurt my eyes and break my brain in the most wonderful way possible. Art Smart is an airwave media podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please do me a favor, leave a rating or review on your favorite podcast app. If you'd like to learn more, check out my other podcast, Who Arted, or go to the website artsmartpodcast.com for more free resources.